Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. Chapter 415 General Nodrak stared at the holotank, leaning back from the table and pushing the plate to the side. He picked up his cigarettes and opened it slowly, looking at the data that he had been looking over while he ate. Almost every unit was no longer engaged in fighting. There was some mop-up, mostly being handled by the light infantry, mechanized infantry, and the light attack craft units. Third Armor was undergoing refit and examination. The tanks of Third Armor and First Armored Recon had long lists of malfunctions, errors, and breakdowns, most of them overlapping. The meme of, your old tank and your new high-tech supertank had millions of likes, recasts, and other engagement metrics. Nodrak knew anger when he saw it. He compared the maintenance lists with the old tanks that 3rd Armor and 1st Recon had swapped out after the Talcan campaign to the current list. Then compared it to the new armor that 1st Talcan Marines and 5th Powered Infantry Division was using. 3rd Armor and 1st Recon had nearly six times the amount of part and software failures that were standard across virtually 80% of tanks. The biggest piece was the battle screen frequency algorithm software that had been patched in the field by an enlisted man from the 27th Maintenance Brigade. Nodrak opened the reports on the software. Core software analysis stated that there was nothing wrong with the algorithm. Everyone lower below the core stated bluntly that the software was trashed. The enlisted man on the 27th report was more in-depth. While most of it was formula and went over Nodrak's head, there was one part that he noted. Every 82 seconds, the software restarted at the same frequency before rotating through six different frequencies within 30-second interval. Afterwards, randomization improved. The second part was that early frequencies all matched the mining lasers used by most mining systems, including precursor systems. While the system should have discarded a set of frequencies and not used them further, it did not lock those frequencies out. Core maintenance claimed that the software did and showed simulations where it did so. The enlisted man encountered that after approximately 185 to 383 seconds, it reset completely, wiping out the frequency lockouts and returning to factory baseline. The one-star general in charge of core maintenance had recommended that enlisted men be punished for insubordination due to the fact that when general replied the core simulations did not show that, the enlisted men replied, Actual use is different, and you'd know that if you'd been in a tank in the last 300 years instead of behind a desk. Nudruk sighed. It was a clear case of insubordination in writing. He wrote a quick recommendation to the enlisted man's commandant to find the enlisted man one knockobier, required ten push-ups, and forced the enlisted man to recite the core motto ten times at high volume as a punishment. He then penned a letter to the general, telling him that he would be personally looking over the action reports regarding the new armored vehicles and armored infantry units. Next up was the logistics report. General Nadruk sighed. The current general in charge of logistics was a perfectly serviceable subordinate, but he lacked General Tic Tac's flair for producing two bullets when he had only expended a shell casing. The general was complaining about nanite depletion, work performance metrics drop-offs, morale issues, retention issues, and, of course, the fact that he busted black market rings twice and a prostitution ring another time. 
General Nodrunk just sighed as the receipt and promised himself that he'd look over it real soon. Clone Warfare was reporting that they were no closer to solving the issues with rapid growth clones and the Born Whole system. And, as the writing of the report, the two systems were being considered unavailable. Simba, Good Boy, and Poor Boy Production was starting to have problems with neurological system collapse, but Clone Warfare was checking the issue to see if it was possible the mutation to the friend killer virus. Additionally, there were now issues of transferring SUDS templates across hardwired systems, and it was possible the entire system would go down. The one was an issue. Nodrak signed the sheets and ordered the entire Clone Warfare division to be taken out of order of battle, despite the problems that it would cause with reinforcement and replacement. General Nodrak punched up his table of organization and equipment, looking for an older section. There, 21st Replacement Battalion. He reactivated it, pulled men from detention offices, medical oversight judgment boards, and other places, and ordered the old unit's colors uncased and the unit brought back online. The FTL Needlecar Superluminal Communication System was back online. He sent memos to the other units within the month's travel distance, advising the other generals of the issues currently plaguing V-Corps, Old Blood, and 7th Army Old Blood, as well as his ideas on how to mitigate these problems. He suggested that reactivating 21st replacement and doing Old Blood, New Blood calls could relieve some tensions, as well as recruiting from former Neo-Sapien populations for integrated forces. He also made sure to annotate that while the various units of 7th Army had not taken many casualties, less than 1% of the false levels, during the last few battles it could not be assumed that there would be no serious mass cal events in the future. Gaemao watched with interest. Dealing with false level issues was never a problem in the Great Herd. For every last soldier, there were millions, billions more to take their place. He was interested in seeing how General Nodrak would handle this issue. The warning was something that made M.O. nod. Well, there has always been billions of replacements awaiting any great herd that took casualties. I can no longer rely on such depth of replacement any longer. The new tanks being developed for Great Grand Most High Aamaru will take weeks, possibly months, of retraining to use, which means that any replacements brought in from other great herd units would require the same training, M.O. thought to himself. He quickly opened up his data slate, message application, and began drafting a report to the Most High Aamaru that the Great Armored Herd might be facing retention, replacement, and recruiting issues in the near future, highlighting the fact that the new weapons and vehicles required training that needed to take place outside of a combat zone. Gaemo nodded to himself as he sent the message. He was the most observant commander, which allowed him to see issues that others may not General Odrak saw the message go out and opened it. He looked it over and nodded to himself, restraining from looking over at Gaemo, who was going over the estimated casualties from the long battle to save the planet. He could tell from the phrasing what the most high Gaemo had been suggesting was tantamount to heresy to the Lanaklan sensibilities. But the Lanaklan had learned. More than that, he applied what he had learned to spot a potential problem in the making. He forwarded it to MI and CID to add the undoubtedly growing files on Lanark Land and Most High MO both. That done, he turned his attention back to the map. Below the mountain still burned 1st Platoon, HHC, 1st Talcon, and two other icons. What's happening down there? he wondered. He reached out, tapping the 108th Military Intelligence Battalion, requesting a situation report. It came back within minutes, complete with video. 
No drug checked the templates first. Templates for mantic cryosleep fluids, parts for cryosleep pods, templates for pre-cooked turkey, chicken, goose, and ham. A question of whether or not a suckling pig could be produced by a template-cracked Class Three nanoforge. No, it could not. Not alive. A request for a template for the goddess Pele succulent fire-walking roast pig feast for a Class Three nanoforge. A request for templates for UV lights calibrated solar output of the planet prior to the precursor AWM attack. Templates for the hollow emitter that could provide EVR non-hookup works with the pre-attack surface park. It just looked weird, but Nodrak changed the order of the data requests several times, then went back over the requests one at a time, complete with any images sent back by Casey. One was a helmet cam of First Lieutenant Vuxted. It showed an armored Sergeant Addox with at least thirty little green mantids huddled around him. Most were asleep, but a good number of them were eating strips of grease dripping with still steaming meat. When Nodrak heard the audio, he groaned and turned it off. So the kid writer, he totally rocks sixth grade, letters in track and field and grab skiing. He's voted most popular, even has top marks grade. His dad, right? His dad decides that the kid deserves the bangiest reward possible. Casey was saying, no drug wasn't falling for that one again. Instead, no drug paid attention to the displayed troop stress levels as Buxton's cam panned over them. They were all well within resting baseline even if all of them but Buxton and Addox were paying attention to Casey, who was talking while he was messing with something on his loading frame. Nodrunk opened up the file and started moving data. Pretty soon, he had a good idea what was going on. There was a facility beneath the mountain that dated back to the initial precursor war. The mantid upper class had rebelled against the queens for unknown reasons. The remaining upper class had been relegated to a hell of cryostasis and revival since then. Buxton and Addix, with the help of the lunatic Casey, were bribing the mantid upper class remaining with Turkey to surrender. Nodrak shifted his attention, looking at the possible exit points for a deep-level mining vehicle leaving the facility. He ordered Clone Warfare Division to run off from pigs, turkeys, and other food animals preferred by mantids and have them on standby. He then copied what he was doing to a memo and sent it to Casey's contact within the 108th MI to forward to Casey. Your blinky is flashing, Private Nelfred said, pointing at the round device in Casey's loading frame. Oh, nice! Casey broke off the joke, reaching down and tapping the device while turning over his left hand so that it was palm up. The hollow emitter implanted in his hand twinkled, and he stared at it for a long moment. Lieutenant Vuxton, sir, Casey said. Go ahead, Sergeant. Command's creating a temporary APOW site with live animals, Manted, rated shelter, and everything else, including psychic dampeners for our soon-to-be-defectors, he said. Coordinates incoming, but we have to place to take these guys in the sun. Buxton nodded. Do you mean magic? Let's keep memeing these guys to life. Casey nodded. I'll get right on that, sir. Buxton looked over at Addicts, who was every green mantid that had wandered into the room, clustered tight around him. How you doing, Sergeant? he asked. All right, sir. Uh, most of them are asleep. It's hot and sweaty in my armor, but there's colors getting better. Addix answered. All right. We're going to lay heating pads on the grav dolly once the work crews get back and they can transfer there. We'll put some low-power phasic inhibitors on it, Buxton said. He turned to where 471 and some of the other greenies were gathered together around a data table. How's it going on your side? Buxton asked. Own this thing, 471 said. Hemming the VI right now. 
Tough security, 578 said. Five-digit password login, single-entry combo. That made Vuxtens not. His pay card had a six-digit pin and had a thumbprint verification. Oh no, how we are classed, A34 said, asking for three-digit number only passcode. Gotcha. It's taking time to figure it all out. Keep it up, Buxton said. He moved over and sat down on a large piece of computer equipment that the greenies had cut out of the system and pulled away. Is it weird that I miss being enlisted, he thought to himself. He suits VI tossed up an image meme. It was blank, just a line in the middle with top text at the very top and bottom text at the bottom. Buxton sighed. They were out of range of everything that didn't bother him so much. Back during Second Dalton War, he'd been deep enough in the jungle enough times that he didn't have communications with anyone else. Back then, it was mostly just him and his squaddies alive, follow orders and fight the good fight. He knew this was part of the good fight, sitting and watching Casey twiddle with a hologram, addicts packed little greenies that had stopped in place, turning to look at him and then asking for food, and watching the rest of the platoon sitting around playing cards. Three of them were using their palm-mounted holoremitters to toss glittering balls back and forth. Vuxton had seen the training films, knew that despite the urgent feeling to do something, that's what he was supposed to do, as a leader, was simply project an aura of calm and control. He was tempted to do a maintenance check on his stubber, but he knew that would increase his platoon's anxiety, and he didn't want anyone else following his example and taking apart their weapon only to have something, anything, attack and catch them unarmed. Training films are different, he lamented. I'm starting to understand Casey's pink golf ball joke and why he keeps starting it over and over. It's not supposed to end. It's supposed to be a kind of touchstone to keep everyone grounded, help pass time, and relax everyone because things have to be going good if a senior NCO can start a joke over and make sure everyone's in on it. Buxton suddenly realized. He almost groaned out loud at how obvious the whole thing was. Sir! Casey's voice broke into Buxton's thoughts. Go ahead, Sergeant, Buxton said. I need you to come with me. I need to move as far away from these little guys as possible, he said. What's going on? Buxton asked. Finish my meme, gotta go with the rest, Casey said. Well, it's less a meme and more a pictograph series to convince those big guys something. The big human got over and started moving to the far end of the room, on the other side of a huge bank of computers. Buxton followed, curiosity starting to well up. When he got over there, Buxton saw Casey holding up a piece of wall steel in his bare hand, his gauntlet sitting on the barrel of the minigun. Cramp up your phasic inhibitors, the greenies installed on your armor to max and max out your psychic shielding as why. Yes, you can without passing out, Casey said. He opened his face paint and took a deep breath, closing his eyes. Um, all right, Buxton said. Should I bring over 471? No, just us, sir, Casey said. He clenched his fist around the piece of wall steel as Buxton cranked up his internal psychic shielding to almost 140%. The max he could handle before he started getting tunnel vision. Casey squeezed the war steel and Vuxton watched as muscle spasms made the muscle along the side of Casey's jaw ripple. Vuxton suddenly smelled dry, dusty air, and a stale, sour human body odor, scorched molly cirques and war steel. His reactor level twitched and he saw his psychic shielding suddenly go amber. Casey was whispering something to himself in a language that Vuxton didn't understand and that his suit's VI didn't translate. It felt like heat was emanating off of Casey, 
and almost physical pressure against Buxton that seemed to push through his armor to press against his skin. Warning! Phasic danger! Warning! Flashed on his visor and his cybernetic eye was announced in his ear. Casey opened his eyes and Buxton tried to resist stepping back, but was unable. Casey's eye was glowing a bright, steady crimson, bright enough to illuminate the eye socket. More, there was a dull red shining from behind the patch. Casey transferred the piece of wall steel to the frame before his minigun and picked up another, squeezing it, and then repeating the whole thing twice more. Buxton watched as Casey closed his eyes, took several deep breaths, and relaxed. The bar for his psychic shielding load dropped from a reddish amber to a yellow to a green to a blue. Everyone okay? Casey asked, slowly standing up. What was that? Buxton asked. Just bad old memories, Casey said dismissively. Nothing major, nothing important. Oh, Buxton felt completely out of his element. Just don't tell the colonel you saw me do that. It freaks her out, Casey grinned. It freaked me out too, Buxton thought to himself, but kept the thought to himself. So, what is that for? Casey flipped his face shield back down. Imprinting a piece of wall steel, he said. He opened his hand and Vuxton saw that he was squeezed like a piece of taffy. This is going to convince the mounted big boys not to fight us. How? Vuxton asked. So a uh, wall steel can be imprinted by intense exposure to anger, love, fear, and other intense basic emotions, Casey said. So uh, I just imprinted it with a battle fury. You're going to have your meme warn them that if they fight, you'll rip them in half. Provide the piece of wall steel as psychic proof to convince them to go into cold sleep till we can get them somewhere that they can be unthawed, Buxton said, putting it all together. You're quick, sir, Casey said. I don't want to fight these guys. I don't think they want to fight, but getting them to the surface has problems. Buxton nodded. Close quarters and the mining machines to travel to the surface. Who knows how they'll react to our battle buddies, you and Addix, not to mention all of us Talkin. Exactly, sir, Casey said. He moved over to the little robot that he had built. He put the piece of wall steel in each of the robots, putting the wall steel in the grasper claw. All right, the pictogram basically says that me and Addix are dangers. We aren't mentioning you or the battle buddies, that we don't want him to get hurt. Casey started. Buxton listened to the rest of his plan. Sounds good, Sergeant, Buxton said. Let's hope it works. Cordexon stood under the air vent. Eyes closed, fantasizing about standing in the long, waving grain of where he had grown to maturity in the service of the queens. About the warmth of the sun on his carapace. How the wind smelled of ripening grain tended to by the russet and golden mantids of the servitor casts. In the long forever he had been trapped in the facility, he had admitted that given what he knew now, he would have preferred to have become a crop tender overseeing the gold and russet mantids working the fields to provide grain for the herds. The little robot rolled back in, beeping. Cordexon looked up, happy to have his thought interrupted. The hologram appeared and it took Cordexon a moment to take it all in. It showed Cordexon next to a cryostasis tube, then it split in two. One side showed Cordexon refusing. A bipedal primate came in, trying to be friendly. Radiation marking psychic danger radiated from the biped's head and Kordaxon exploded. On the other side, Kordaxon got inside, and then it showed the primate carrying the cryopod up to the surface where it opened, and Kordaxon got out to eat turkey in the sunshine. Kordaxon scoffed slightly. After all, he was the premier psychic predator in the galaxy. 
The robot beeped, and the robotic clamp raised up. Kodaxon recognized it as Substance W. He reached out with one blade on and tapped it. You cannot stop me. Nothing can stop you. You can't kill this motherfucker. Nobody can save you from me. My hate knows no boundaries that your ilk can flee beyond. You cannot stop me. My wrath, my rage will never, ever stop. Godaxon was almost overwhelmed by the images that slammed into his mind and threatened to tear him apart like a cardboard trying to hold back an atomic explosion. Ruined cities burned, blasted landscape, scorched skies, the sound of millions screaming in terror and agony, the terrible silence of being the only living thing. He was wrapped in substance W, in strength-enhanced armor, wading into his foes, screeching things, warped things that his fists crushed, his hands tore asunder, that his guns shattered, their jaws snapped at him. Their caustic drool flooded their jaws. Poison bubbled around him. Fire surrounding him. He was surrounded, overwhelmed, cut off, alone, by twisted mockeries of life that gibbered and howled and capered and danced even as they killed and destroyed. But that wasn't the worst of Kadex's senses. The rage that filled him, the all-consuming fury a need to destroy, to smash, to hammer the enemy into nothing more than carbon paste that would drip from his fists. The howl and bellow of rage and fury at an uncaring universe, even as he thirsted for carnage and mayhem. His thoughts were charged with it, buoyed by it, flooded with it. Images of men and women and children being slaughtered did nothing more than fill him with even more rage, more anger, more fury, stoking into all-consuming fire that burned hotter than the atomic explosions that roared to life around him. Nothing could quench that all-consuming fury, that need to destroy. It needed bed. Godaxon slammed back against the wall, panting. His abdomen heaved as each breath he took, as he was aware that he was rubbing his vestigial wings together in anxiety, as he stared in horror at the piece of substance W as it slowly lowered down into the robot. The front of the robot opened to show more turkey. He moved forward, picking up the turkey, and went to sit in his command couch. The robot turned away and moved away, taking the piece of unbridled fury with it. He suddenly found that he did not care if he lived or died. When asked, he would allow himself to be put in cryostasis, anything to avoid the creature that had touched the piece of substance W, infusing it with more than wrath. Godaxon knew that he had tasted another being's hate. He did not wish to taste it again. Buxton and Addax, who had just finished putting the last little green mantid onto the grab dolly, setting it gently on the warming pad. Two privates were covering the little greenies with another warming pad. They're in cryostasis pods and being loaded into the gobbler, Buxton said. The rest of the pods are already loaded. Mail load these guys up then, Addax said. How long till we get to the surface? Four hours, Buxton said. He looked around at the computer and control center. The computer system will shut this facility down into standby mode in six hours, in case we have to come back. Alex nodded. I'll just be glad to get out of here. Me too, Sergeant. Me too, Buxton agreed. General Nodruck had returned from the latrine when the icon started flashing. Sir, Ada-1 has made surface. They're requesting mantid-capable medical services and evac, one of his eight said. Nodrak felt a wave of relief fill him, knowing the mountain was going to stay intact. 
May I ask a question? Gamo asked of the Trianidad general. Go ahead, Nodrak said. Does it bother you that it seems anticlimactic? Gamo asked. I spent the past several days nervously awaiting that explosion that would turn the central mountain range hub into a fiery pit of doom. But yet, nothing happened. Nodrak gave the Trianidad equivalent of a smile. Yeah, it's almost disappointing, isn't it? Gamo nodded. Indeed. Well, let's find out what they found out there, Nodrak said. He turned back to his aide. Get medical teams in there. I want a full debrief as soon as possible, he said. He turned back to Gamo. Why don't you accompany me? I would like that, Gamo said. Gacy stood next to Vuxton, watching the medical personnel unload the cryostasis pods from the massive mining machine. Glory was sitting behind him, mechanics going over a left leg and hip. You know, I thought we were going to end up shooting our way out, not bribing them, Vuxton said. Shooting our way out could have been one of the easy ways, Casey shrugged. We are ready for that. We got lucky. How so? Buxton asked. Casey looked down at the Talcon officer. We had an arrangement of skill sets and knowledge that normally isn't available without prior preparation. Between all of us, we had the skills necessary to get out of a jam without having to resort to combat. That is rare. Buxton nodded and filed the information away. Next time, I might not be so lucky. End of chapter. Chapter 416. The M318A2E5 General Purpose Heavy Machine Gun. A 20mm barrel, frangible link belt fed, each box of ammunition containing 200 rounds of variable munition, from standard soft alloy ball rounds to armor-piercing incendiary to self-correcting guided armor-piercing discarding sabofen stabilized wall steel jacketed density enhanced shell mass reactive antimatter core with tracer. Maximum rate of fire, 2,000 rounds per minute. Maximum effective rate of fire is 350 rounds per minute. Recommended rate of fire is 100 rounds per minute. It can be altered on the fly with an advanced firing system or manually fixed by the unit armorer or a weapon engineer trained green mounted. A crew-served warbalk or gunnery-heavy combat frame or parity system, alternatively mounted in a fixed position or in a light-armored combat vehicle, often used as a light weapon on Warmax. It has also been used as a bludgeoning weapon against particularly aggressive and insistent enemy and proven to be more resilient than the body of the enemy. A single barrel with a heat shroud, magnetic rail acceleration with magnetic coil stabilization and variable munition effects, with thermal bloom heatsink option. The bare minimum moving pieces after thousands of years of being steadily shaved down. Stripped down, there's not a single extraneous piece of hardware entirely on her body. Capable of air defense, point defense, anti-armor, anti-infantry, anti-vehicle usage, depending on deployment and selected munition type. If you can see it, if you can hit it, if you can maintain fire upon it, you will inevitably kill it. Rather, she will kill it, if you are skilled enough. Able to be resupplied by a class 2 nanoforge with only built-in heat sinks and radiator fins. It is capable of resupplying itself for nearly 700 rounds per minute and stay within heat tolerances for an unaltered Class II nanoforge using only atmospheric mass intake. A Class I nanoforge can produce 400 rounds per minute within heat tolerances. A Class III and higher can produce 10,000 rounds per minute with little to no heat or nanite stress and is only limited by the amount of mass it has access to. A standard ball round without nanoforge fabrication costs and Confederate taxpayer 125 credits. 
An advanced round like a Confederate military uses as its standard loadout would cost the Confederate taxpayer 14,200 credits per round. As the Confederate taxpayer has graciously supplied you with the nanoforge, each round only costs the Confederate taxpayer one credit worth of nanites and mass. You will not waste the Confederate taxpayer's money. Able to be attached to autonomous firing points and carried by a warborg, the M318A2E5 does not have to rely on fancy virtual reality, virtual intelligence assistance, or even holographic targeting. At times, the M318A2E5 has been stripped down to the basic components with a hollowed-out rotation tin as a sight. With the weapon entirely made from Gen Zero war steel without any fancy laminates, molecular circuitry, or even necessarily having to rely on electrical primers or firing systems, the M318A2E5 is resistant to gravity, radiation, electromagnetic pulses, and can survive inside a fireball of 10.25 megaton nuclear blast and still be serviceable to kill an enemy. Basically, unchanged with the exception of the Nanoforge Ammunition Supply System, NASS, since prior to the Diaspora, the M318A2E5 General Purpose Heavy Machine Gun System has killed more of the enemy than even Planet Cracker-class weaponry. It has tasted the blood of dozens of species, some without even names, and sent them wailing to the afterlife. From the shores of the Yine Fence to the blasted sands of the Antil to the deathlands of the Niven Rings, the 318 has been the infantry's knockout punch since before terror managed FTL travel. Like her mother, the Meduse, she proved that mass infantry charges are not military feasible if you wish to have any males left to rebuild your nation and species. Carried by the Chromium St. Peter on Antil, this weapon has felt the touch of the digital Omni-Messiah and killed men during the burger wars of the pre-diaspora while mounted on armored fighting vehicles. This weapon is one of the grand old dames of warfare, up there with the Gerber K-Bar Mark III and the M9A2 bayonet at her mother, the M2A6 E2 50 caliber general purpose heavy machine gun. And you, recruit, will treat her, treat all of them, with respect, as she has earned it, unlike every one of you sacks of shit. Take your places next to your assigned weapon, and we will begin familiarization with a bare-bone stripped weapon. I do not agree with the sentiment that you are worthy to touch her. Time will tell. Advanced Individual Training, Infantry, Heavy Weapons Familiarization, Day 1 This is the M8271E5 Heavy Weapons Specialist Standard Basic Gunner's Frame. 28 pounds of advanced hyperalloys, a foamed battle steel core, and a wall steel laminate jacket. The M8271E5 will enable you to carry and effectively use, while mitigating endurance and fatigue, the heavy weapons of the Terran Confederate Army. Designed initially to allow ammunition specialists to work with heavy munitions in timely manner, the frame was adapted for heavy gunners' work prior to the Great Glassing. It has gone through repeated redesigns until the version in front of you was settled upon during the Lancaster Nebula Wars. This frame can be supplemented with smart frame-capable offensive and defensives, including battle screens and EVI warboy assistance, as well as having modular armor layered onto it for additional protection from vacuum, radiation, battle steel hazards, and because you are so ugly that we would prefer not to look at you. Costing the Terran Confederate taxpayer 22,000 credits in mass to create, the gunner's frame is worth more than any of you mouth-breathing, ball sweat huffing morons in front of me. 
At my command, you will step forward, place your big lump clumsy feet into the pedals, and reach forward with your long skinners and cloak-eye rubbers and grasp the handles. You will not mistake my command and lodge any important parts of this device into your rectums or other waste orifices. You will not fall down. You will not embarrass me or your instructors, or I will personally make sure that your existence is a living hell due to the fact that you are too stupid to walk and breathe at the same time. Mount the frames. Advanced Individual Training Infantry. Heavy Weapons System Familiarization. Day 5. Your warboy is a custom-grown enhanced virtual intelligence whose basic call seat was grown from one of the scans of your neural tissue-based motor reflexes. This means the two of you think to some extent alike. Currently, your warboy is undergoing the final phase of personality gelling before they will hatch from their digital cell and, for their sins, be assigned to you for a training period of two years, after which they'll move on to other soldiers just as you will be assigned to different units. Warboy integration has proven to increase your combat effectiveness and handling by the complexities of modern battlefield and modern war gear. They will largely handle your electronic warfare systems, your battle screens, heat and slash levels, gravitation generator balancing, and many other systems that the modern soldier has to worry about. Gentle beings, integration with your warboy is a necessary section of your training. If you cannot integrate with your warboy, you will have failed from this course and will be cast into the masses of non-combat personnel. No, below them, down to where the unwired work counting how many tires are on the general's personal grav lifter and vainly trying to remember if three comes out after four. A fate worse than death, gentle beings, for honed killing machines such as yourselves. Currently, your warboy is dreaming, learning things. The cyber egg has been mounted to your combat frame so that you can move through simulations and get your warboy used to how you move. Move slow and steady. Follow your training and teach your warboy how you move. Mount the frames. Advanced individual training, infantry, warboy familiarization, day one. When forced with reacting to a subconscious level or taking your warboy's advice, you must remember that your warboy is a digital semi-sentience without the millions of years of predator evolution that turned you into the top tool using the land-dwelling predator of your worlds. You have dedicated neural systems within your brain that you have had since the only sounds that you knew was your mother's heart or the egg tenders singing, that enabled every single one of your forebearers to not only survive long enough to pass on the genetics to the female or zermale of your species, but that gestator sex to survive long enough to give birth to those young. Your three to six pounds of neural wiring enabled your forebearers to overcome everything from giant lizards to crystalline hunters and avian predators until your species was the dominant one of the entire planet. The warboy has what he was being programmed with and what he has learned. Your instincts will, 80% of the time, trump the warboy's protests or suggestions. The other 20%, you'll either recognize that the warboy's suggestion is superior or everything will come apart on you. You must remember, gentle beings, that your warboy understands your electronic warfare systems and their operations in the same way that you understand how to run across a field. Training and practice. Before you protest that your people are peaceful, cooperative people, and that you are an outlier, that you were conquered by the Lanarkland or had your faces smashed in by the Terrans, you must remember one thing. You were, or are, the dominant predator on your planet. Trust your warboy. But trust your instincts also. 
The course that you're about to enter is designed to cause your warboy to make the wrong suggestions and attempt to countermand your orders. It is much a training exercise for him as it is for you. Mount the frame. Advanced Individual Training Infantry. Warboy Familiarization Day 12. This is the pinnacle of modern infantry warfare. The M894 Powered Assault Armor. A man-sized piece of equipment that allow you to fight anywhere within the universe and most of the other known universes. It is, in effect, a self-contained combat spaceship with modular systems, capable of allowing you to fight without any support for up to five years without needing resupply. With an onboard nanoforge, even critical system replacement is possible. The record for unsupported operation in power armor is 23 years, and the grand total of time in direct combat of 9 years, 3 months, 14 days, 3 hours, 16 minutes, and 42 seconds. That pilot survived. That, gentle beans, is not recommended. Advanced Individual Training, Infantry, Power Armor, Familiarization, Day 1. The M9E7 orbital insertion pod is used to insert Confederate forces onto hostile surface, often directly into battle from far orbit. Capable of acting as an emergency life support pod, complete with maneuvering thrusters, the M9OIP carries a 13-man infantry squad and all of their equipment from the troop ship or warship to the surface of a planet, asteroid, or niven ring, capable of withstanding more than one orbital defense hit. The OIP is a safer environment for the infantry than the inside of those cobbled-together rust-bucket Space Force and Navy wander around the universe in. With the built-in Class V nanoforge, the M9E7 OIP is returning to the previous Confederate Army doctrine of each squad is capable of opening from a fixed position with everything that they need from the drop pod. Loaded with templates to create everything from rapid-strike grav lifters to standard sidearms, the drop pod is not only how you get to the ground, but how you hold it once you take it. Unlike the Marine Corps pods, the M9E7 is designed to be disassembled and used as the core of a forward operating base that'll enable you to withstand anything the enemy can throw at you, given enough time and mass. This training unit will teach you how to use the OIP to the best effect to kill the enemy, break his positions, and take his territory. Mount the frame! Advanced Individual Training, Infantry, Orbital Insertion Pod Familiarization, Day 1. Andrat sat at his bunk, his status late in hand, going over the standard combat maneuvers for the upteenth time. They were ingrained in his memory now, but he still felt the need to examine them again for anything that he might have missed. His people weren't the brightest out there, but they were persistent and enduring. Once he had read it, he took the self-quiz, answering questions and moving the icons around to show his work. After that, he went over proper radio procedures, despite the fact that he had been warned repeatedly that proper radio procedure often ended when the munitions were being expended or after a sufficiently long period of time in a combat zone. A new section had been added while he was in training, and Andrat wanted to make sure that he had memorized it by going over it again and again. The Terran Confederate Army had begun training its soldiers in radio wave frequency communications based on bands most races had long abandoned. Several times, sidebars with Andrat that disposed unjammable quantum and strange matter linkage communications had recently been completely jammed and rendered unusable by the enemy through unknown means in the combat theater. The communications procedure book now contained how to even use flashing lights or waving cloths to signal others, as well as flares, smoke, and fire. 
It was in his room, which he has shared with three other soldiers, as a part of the 2nd Platoon, Bravo Company, 9th Battalion, 2nd Brigade, 5th Regiment, 23rd Infantry Division, 7th Corps, 14th Army. Andrat liked the long label. It let him know exactly who was in charge of him, which made him more comfortable. He could recite the names of every commander of each unit, as well as the executive officer and master enlisted and knew them by sight from their pictures. He'd even listened to recordings of their speech over and over, until he was confident that he could remember them by their voice if he ever heard it. It was good to remember things. He sat in his adaptive camouflage uniform, the rank of Private Grade Two on his sleeve. He had been promoted once he had finished his training, arrived at his new unit, and passed the basic tests to ensure that he'd retained the knowledge outside of training. Of course, he had. Once he'd learned it, he would not forget it. When he heard it, he raised his head from his book, frowning, You belong to us! Sighing, he turned off the data slate and got up, setting it on his desk. He grabbed his hat and headed for the door. He doubted that the scream was friendly. He trudged towards the armory and he heard it again. You belong to us! This time, he heard the scream back from every Terran around him. Eat a dick! Terrans were running by, heading towards the armory. Like Andrat's people, the Terrans had evolved as pursuit predators, persistence hunters on a high-gravity world. Andrat wasn't worried. He knew he would get to the armory in time to sign in and make formation. He looked forward to protecting his former overseer. After all, the overseer had protected Andrat and his people. It was only fair. End of chapter. Chapter 417 Palgret knelt down, trying to control his breathing, as 281 hung upside down from the ceiling working with a fusion torch. The big human stood next to the wall, facing back the way they had come, slamming his fist into the wall over and over into the same spot. Crunch! 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 The Mactanan infantryman huddled in his armor. It was warm inside his armor, but the armor was reporting only three degrees Calvin and felt chilly somehow like Frost just kissing the ends of the hair of his fur. Like an assistant lover tickling the fur on the side of his neck with their tongue, he knew it was impossible. That cold didn't act in such a way. But it was. Crunch! 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 Cut halfway down, men, 030 said. He was worried about what he'd find on the hull of the ship. But right now, the interior was infested with Margite, real or not. That had already killed one of his men. He'd worry about what was on the surface when he got his men out there. Crunch! 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 Lieutenant Mokru'u was grateful that the universe had bestowed upon him six eyes that allowed him to see in all directions around him at once. His armor had been designed to take advantage of that, and so had a clear view around the entire squad. He held his rifle, which had gone from a sensible plasma rifle to a Terran-designed magak with spikes at the butt plate, an underslung 40mm grenade launcher, and lines that promised death and destruction. It had grown on him, a sensible weapon made to do nothing more than kill the enemy and break their crap, so to speak. It didn't pretend to be anything else, didn't bother to try and conceal its purpose with fancy-fancy flowing lines or form. Makru'u felt that it was a good thing after all, the rifle had ripped apart those terrible five-limbed things that had attacked the squad. His flank still ached and burned, itched now, 
but that was starting to feel better. His armor was reporting that his wound was starting to respond to the quick heal compounds now that the infection in his blood had been handled by his bolstered immune system. He concentrated on the big Terran. At first, the Terran had seemed horrifying. Then it had changed into a nightmare of spikes at rage. Now, it was nothing more than fury made flesh and armor. At first, Mu'ukru'u had been frightened of the Terran. Now, he appreciated the other being. Those who are allied with the Mad Lemurs of Terror are indeed blessed by the Digital Omni Messiah, he thought to himself. The words did not cause him shock. True, others of his people would think him foolish for his new fervent belief in the Digital Omni Messiah of Terror, would tell him he was foolish or chide him for giving in to superstition. Those people had not traversed a murder reality with only portable shield generator between their souls and hell space. Of all this, Mokru would have scoffed at the idea of a soul, but after having felt these foul energies touch him, Mokru no longer had any doubt. He glanced at the Terran, looking at the lines of the armor, the burning wall steel decorations, and the way he kept slamming one huge armored fist against the wall. Crunch! 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 281 could feel the atmosphere in the ship slipping through the cut that he was making with the whistle. He was glad that he was using a fusion torch rather than the old heat-based ones, otherwise the rapid airflow through the gap would have cooled the metal before he could have easily cut through it. Battle steel parted with like lace before a hacksaw as he moved the torch slowly across the plating. Most of his fellows would have been surprised that too, aka Sergeant Kalkuk, had led them to a section that, in eons past, a weapon had blown a crater into the hull of the PAWM deep enough that it would let them out easily. 281 had worked with Sergeant Kalkuk since he'd been assigned to the unit and had learned that the opulescent stripes on the black manded were for more than looks. Almost done, 281 transmitted. Well, that's what everyone else got. The lexicon firmwared into his data link translated the complex mathematical formula sets involving using atomic molecular fusion to create a gap in battle steel in order to cut through something into something everyone else could understand. As soon as they got onto the hull, 281 would use the three devices that he'd carefully constructed. A subspace beacon with the team's IFFs loaded into it, a real space flare that could be seen easily for several light seconds. Finally, a superluminal flare that would throw out a signal into jump space, hyperspace, and string space. With any luck, someone would see it. Without, well, he'd have the human flatten him before he'd let himself suffocate in his suit. Crunch! 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 Palgrid watched as the cut route was lowered down. The air was no longer whistling through the gap in a shriek, but instead seemed to form a weird bubble slightly extending out. You know what? I don't even care anymore, Palgrid thought to himself. Zero three zero waved him over and Palgrid stepped forward. Zero three zero and two eight one got up on his shoulders and held tight as the human lifted Palgrid up and out of the bubble. Palgrid managed to scramble over the bottom of the crater, which was at least two hundred meters in diameter. He looked up and just stared. There was a dark spot in the sky that hurt his eyes, hurt his brain. Beyond it, completely surrounding, was what looked like a twisted veins and corruption that pulsed even as he looked at it. It made him nauseous, with his mouth full of taste of rotting meat. In the distance, he could see tiny pinpricks tumbling through the dark. The dark was full of screaming.
pole grid fell to all fours, 030 and 281 holding on tight, and he clawed on his knees and elbows away from the hole, staring at the rippling battle steel and wretched. Psychic attack recovery positions, 030 ordered. Pulgrit put his rifle between his knees, wrapped his arms around his knees, and put the top of her helmet against the barrel of his rifle, making sure that the weapon's muzzle was pointing up and away from him. He held tight, shaking, trying to block out the screams of agony coming from so many places. 281, fire off munitions, 030 ordered, doing his best to ignore the sounds of the screams that echoed around him. Roger, roger. 281 answered, climbing down off the Mactanan, who was shivering hard enough that 281 had to be careful where he stepped. They were out in a vacuum now, so his ramjet wouldn't work. He scampered across the battle steel, getting away from everyone as they climbed out of the hole that he'd cut in the hull. The Terran came out last and was almost out when the edges of the hole suddenly warped, twisted, turned into its gums with jagged teeth that were drooling clear slime. The teeth slammed together, and 030 half expected to see the Terran's leg get severed at mid-calf. Instead, teeth shattered, and the Terran looked down, clenching his fist, and smashed the teeth out till his ankle was freed and pulled his leg out. The hole seemed to scab over. Promising, 030 said, adding sarcasm emojis. Try to bite off more than he could chew, Two said. He looked up, shuddered and then looked back down. This just keeps getting better. 281 set up the three devices. They were designed to all work at the same time to boost one another and enable one another to function. The superluminal flare and the real space flare were first, which would power the rescue beacon. He knew he had to hurry. The screaming from the space around him was beating against his mental fortress, slamming against the barriers and fortifications that he had erected all of his life. Finally, he scurried over the next of the others and crouched down, assuming the psychic recovery position. 030 watched as the Terran moved over and knelt down in the middle of everyone, leaning against the upraised knee and looking up the sky. The flares went off, bathing the human's face in light. Marduk was moving towards a massive precursor when a real space flare and a superluminal rescue flare went off. After a long 1.312 seconds, a beacon fired up, feeling cold, satisfaction, or as close as he was able to come to that emotion, he altered course, slowing down and checking his internal systems. The troops that he had built were ready, and he had the gantries and systems move them from the growth pods to the arming stations to the vehicle, which was a vacuum-capable combat vehicle designed and theorized when he was being programmed, field-tested, and perfected by his own logical systems. He loaded the combat vehicle into the powered zero-g landing frame and sent the signals to wake the pilots and the ground troops after ensuring that his instructions were completely loaded in and would be obeyed without question or modification. It was only a scant few minutes before the position was correct. He came to a zero relative velocity and movement in relation to the section of hull, opened the bay door and released the clamps. He monitored the telemetry on the vehicle dropping down making sure that it was a safe distance to prevent the people that he was trying to save from being baked by the fusion engines. He was Marduk. While he did not have to worry about such things, those he sought to aid did, and he was not going to make basic mistakes of such type. The frame landed, the clamps released, and the combat crawler headed towards the beacon. His sensors could pick up the small team. They would soon be rescued.
Balgrit looked up at the vibration and lights, seeing a tracking vehicle extend out past the edge of the crater, then drop down and grind down the side of the crater. It hit the bottom and leveled out, coming forward. None feet, 030 commanded. Everyone struggled to their feet, staring at the vehicle as it got close. It had a strange emblem on it, but to Pargret, it was obvious that it was a Terran craft. It turned sharply so that the side was facing Pargret and the others and came to a stop. The side lowered into a ramp and two armored soldiers waved them in. Let's go, 030 ordered. Something made him nervous, but he pushed it aside. The transponder from the vehicle was Terran Combine, which to 030 meant idiots or martial orders. One by one, the troops, Algrit included, got inside. There was a few moments that they had to wait while the crash seats adjusted for the Mactanan, Lanaktalan, and Mantid troops. Algrit noticed that the Terran in his heavy armor outmatched the ones in the sleek-looking armor and refused to sit down. One of the armored troops that had been aboard the craft fixed Palgrit's straps. For a second, a trick of light made the visor clear and Palgrit frowned inside his own helmet. The face looked almost Terran. Sunken cheeks, square blade of a nose, thick forehead almost like a square, pale skin and odd-appearing eyes. Almost Terran. System, Palgrim said. Waiting, his onboard system said. Rewind, he said. When he saw the flash, he stopped it. Overshot, made it, overshot. Then he rewounded at one-tenth speed until he got the image just perfect. Snapshot, send it to Captain 030, he said. Message as, I don't think this is a Terran. Is it a robot? Algret waited, tabbing up a piece of gum and chewing it. After a minute, he got a reply. It was chilling, made him feel as if the cold breeze had run up his spine, even though he didn't understand why. No android, 030 said. End of chapter. This is a special thank you to the one, the only, the legendary Erak Hino, who has become the only Tier 6 patron. I just want to thank the T5 patrons and channel members. Bob the Dragon, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Australia the Dreamer, Trigan 95, Pudic Yol, Meridian 117, Elithia, Jordan Buxborn, Angry Marine, Albarden Gasta, and Barky. Thank you very much. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. There are links down below both to support this channel and for the author of this fiction. Anyways, I hope you all have a fantastic one, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.